You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, socially distantly, is Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Good to talk to you. How are you doing? I didn't even call you my co-hostess with the mostest. You're you're messing up the program here, Kyla. You're messing up the formula. People are going to be listening and tuning out. I know that will happen as soon as you start doing that. (laughs) My dad's going to be disappointed. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, Well, I've now implicitly called you the co-hostess with the mostest. So I guess there's that. Yeah. Um, How are you? I haven't seen you in weeks. Yeah, I'm good. Um, for the most part, I've been in the office. You haven't been in the office. We've managed to do deliveries to you, and that seems to have worked out well enough. You've got a lot of work done. Yep. So glad for that. And uh, it's been uh, actually surprisingly busy. So. Well, I, I told you I'm coming in tomorrow, even though I still have this low-grade fever. Oh, well, if you got a low-grade fever, don't come in. No well, fever. No, I... You're not allowed to come in the office if you got a fever. That's what you Bonnie say, Henry said. You have to come into the office. Well, you can go in on Saturday when nobody's there. Um, There's all anyway, sorts of stuff the, there. Uh, Things you have, have to take to care of. About. We do have a lot to talk about. We don't need to argue about when you need to go into the office on the podcast. This was a big, a big week. Um, the BC Provincial Court announced its move towards restoring its full operations, which doesn't sound at all like driving law, but in fact has a very interesting connection to driving law that you wouldn't think about. None, none that I can think of. So I guess you wouldn't think well, about it. What is it? The BC Provincial Court, mm. in their reopening plan, has got to deal with the fact that they've adjourned all trials from, what was it, like March 20th or something? Sometime in mid-March. I don't know. I was, you know, self-isolating. But sometime in March until... July 3rd now, and they extended their trial adjournment period to July 3rd. So you have March, April, May, June, July. Was that four months? Yeah. And, four and a uh, half months yeah. of no trials Yeah, throughout the whole province. So you have a lot of backlog of people whose court dates are going to have to be rescheduled, whose trials are going to have to be reset, and people who are wanting their matters to be heard in a timely fashion. Courts that are already overburdened. (laughs) And you're thinking to yourself, okay, four months, just bump everything back four months. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, When they've been doing calculations of of how far off they are in so-called elective surgeries, like non-emergency surgeries, we're talking 24 months now uh, Mm -hmm. that that many of these surgeries can be, end up being postponed as a result of it. And that's 24 months with them increasing the hiring of surgeons and increasing the training of people to assist in surgeries. Exactly. Um, we don't have the next 6, 8, 12 months of just more judges magically appearing. Well, they're also, and, not, they're also not dumping a bunch of money into the justice system suddenly. <laughs> like, oh, hey. spends money on a justice system? Um, no, it, it's fascinating because the day they released their reopening plan, the following day, they published, as they do every year, the Provincial Court Judge's Complement, which tells you where we are in the number of 
judicial full-time equivalents, so the, the equivalent of, of one full-time judge, how many judicial full-time equivalent positions there are in the province, and where we are compared to the last, you know, three and a half years since Jordan was released, yeah. and where we are compared to 2005, which was a marker used in a report by the Senate on justice delayed is justice denied, as when the provincial court actually had a good sort of time frame from charge to trial. Okay. And we are still down about 20 judicial full-time equivalents huh. from the 2005, you know, goalpost. Wow. So we're not close to what we need to have an effective justice system without a pandemic causing four months of trial delays. Yeah, that's so a big concern. the court has to get creative. Yeah, they're going to have to do something. So what's and creative? I mean, aside from just hiring a bunch of judges, you need more than just judges. You need, you know, clerks for court. You need courtrooms for them to sit in. You, yeah, you know. <laughs> you need, you know, trials also take longer now. You know, we have a more complicated and thorough understanding of the charter. There are more applications that have to be made. Silly, in, silly, in silly, silly understanding. Silly understanding I, of the charter. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to get to is one of the things that the court recognized on the 30th when it published its reopening plan was that of criminal trials that are scheduled in British Columbia, 4% proceed on the trial date. 96% of trials that are scheduled, you schedule a trial for, oh, what day is this podcast coming out? May 8th. You schedule a trial for May 8th. 100 trials are scheduled that day. 96 of them will not happen because they'll be guilty pleas, adjournments, or the accused won't show up and there'll be a bench warrant. <laughs> or the complainant won't show up and there'll be a stay. Oh, yeah, or stays of proceedings. Yeah, guilty pleas, adjournments, stays of proceedings, and bench warrants account for 96% of trials that are set. 4% actually move forward. That's shocking. Which, well, but it kind it of, you know, sometimes though. the way judges look at you when you're about to start a trial is like, you're really, you're going to run a trial? Well, yeah, you mean the last trial <laughs> I You mean I'm going to have to I actually did. have a trial? <laughs> the last trial I did, the, the judge, the provincial court judge for about, 18 months now, I think, um, was a criminal lawyer, crown and defense for a long time um, before becoming a judge and appeared shocked that we were running an impaired driving trial. So I haven't done one of these in ages. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they don't happen. 4%. Um, only 4%, 4% of them. And so the court, in recognizing that if 96% of trials are actually not happening, and by and large, you know, taking out the bench warrants, it's people who aren't ready ready for trial for whatever reason, people who are uh, have resolved the matter for whatever reason, or, or crowns dropping the charges because charge approval standard isn't met. they got to do something to try and filter those out because you'll have trial dates a lot sooner if you have fewer trials being booked. So they implement this thing called the pretrial conference, which, of course, they kind of used to have. I know, I know all about it. Hearings. Trial yeah. confirmation hearing. Back in my day, <laughs> we had we never had arraignment hearings. It wasn't called an arraignment hearing. We, you know, we'd have our our first appearance, and then we would have our intake appearances, and then we would have a a uh, 
a fixed date. We'd schedule the trial date on the fixed date, and then we would have a trial confirmation hearing a month before. Um, and um, then, of course, they introduced arraignment hearings, and you had to fill out a form. And then you had to fill out a yeah. form for a trial confirmation date. And then they decided, well, trial confirmation dates, they're not really useful. But I thought they were useful. They were certainly more useful than an arraignment hearing. Yeah, um, six weeks before your trial, you're like, is this actually going to go ahead? Yeah, it was usually just a month before. So there was a bunch of things you'd do. It would remind you to contact your client and get the balance of fees. Uh, the prosecution was expected to um, yeah, file any charter notice that was necessary, uh, notice of any expert witnesses, forced you to think about it, forced the prosecutors to read their files, uh, and often check to see whether the witnesses were coming, and usually that was the very first question. I don't know what you're pouring yourself, but it sounds delicious. Uh, that was the very first question out of the judge's mouth was, you know, have you, have you confirmed your witnesses yet? And yeah. that was a very effective thing. And then ultimately it got to the point where the crown was just saying, yeah, well, yeah we're going to confirm them. And judges were saying, oh, okay. But, you know, we'll we ended up. confirm them on trial date. Then judges started getting upset about that. And so they started adjourning the trial confirmation hearing a week. Well, I want you to confirm your witnesses. I want you to come back in a week. And you're sitting there as defense counsel going, oh my goodness, I'm not getting paid for all of these extra appearances. Mm-hmm. And then they just eliminated them entirely. And I thought, wow, this is actually something that forced us to organize ourselves, forced Crown to organize themselves, forced defense and Crown to think about it. Yeah. Sometimes even forced them to have a couple of phone calls and you're eliminating Wait. it. And that's yeah. why I, I think it ended up going this way. But again, they should have just contacted you because you've been writing all of these pieces for various different publications, telling them what to do through the pandemic. And it seems only days later, they go ahead and do it. Well, you know, as usual, nobody listens to me. It's not like I came up with a lot of these ideas back on, like, March 15th, but it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to take credit. I'm going to assume that because the wheels of, of the various branches of government turn slowly and because people are obsessed with the idea of striking a committee to discuss the idea that we all know is ultimately going to be the thing that they implement, that... All they did was take a long time to formally approve everything that I said that they should do. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I, the I, I wonder if anybody is actually reading it. The thing that fascinates me, and bringing this back around to driving law, because I know everybody's like, but where's the driving law? The thing that fascinates me about the pretrial conference is that if you take out, you know, those 96% of cases that are, are going to resolve, the remaining 4% of cases that are going to go to trial... Um, and, and you're trying to only get those actually scheduled for trial, you're not going to get there because, and this is based on Statistics Canada data from 2015, which is the most recent available, 87% of criminal trials are impaired driving cases. 87% of cases set for trial are impaired driving. Yeah, And that includes in British Columbia, where we have, like, the the IRP scheme still impaired driving is a, a significant number of the cases. I, that, I can't believe it's eighty seven percent, but it's got to be a number. It could be forty percent. That, it's Stats Canada data. You can look it up. Yeah, I linked it in my Lawyer's Daily article. Stats Canada. I put it like in quotes in the air. Anyway, uh, <laughs> regardless, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of of cases that are set for trial. But the problem with it is that you have two significant hurdles to an early resolution. You know, now they're saying, oh, this pre-trial conference is a really great way to get everybody to resolve their files before trial, and we're going to put people off the record, put counsel in front of a judge, 
and the judge is going to talk about, you know, the Crown's got to provide a synopsis. Defense can provide information about, you know, whatever, plus their charter notice, plus, you know, client circumstances. Who, who knows? It's all off the record. The PTC judge is not going to be the trial judge. So, you know, if you... Sometimes I wouldn't care. Want, sad. <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> um, and then uh, the judge will try and encourage the parties to see if there's a way to resolve the case. The problem is, for an impaired driving file or a driving while prohibited, you're looking at a mandatory minimum. Fine, prohibition, criminal record. My clients have zero incentive to plead guilty because... Why? Why? You, yeah, I, you're going to get the mandatory minimum. You're standing yeah. there at the pretrial conference. The Crown is going to go ahead with the trial unless they're going to offer you something that's not the 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 impaired driving or the drive while prohibited charge. There's absolutely no motivation for you to do anything. You're not going to plead them guilty. I, I mean, I generally, I can say you almost never, ever plead somebody guilty. I've had, no, to, and I've I, had to argue with you to persuade you to plead somebody guilty on one occasion. You have dragged me kicking and screaming down a hallway halfway through a trial to plead somebody guilty. <laughs> I'm still persuaded I could have won. <laughs> the, uh, maybe not. Um, the, uh, there's a, a limited circumstance of times, right, where you have a multiple, a person who's had multiple impaired driving offenses and, you know, the Crown's going to proceed um, with an agreement not to seek jail or something like that, where your yeah, client know, but, might get But the vast benefit. majority <laughs> of the times, you're not going to do it. If it's a first offense, it doesn't even matter what it's going to be. You're not yeah. going to get worse if you run a trial and lose. And that's the way, it sh- you know, the, the, the problem there is um, I don't want to encourage judges to be making it harder for people if they run a trial, if they demand their right to have a trial. I don't want they them can. to end up getting punished. Well, they they, they can say they're not doing it. It's an appealable can, error. They can they would obviously not stand there and or sit there as a judge and say that's what they're doing. But you never know what's going through their head. Um, it would be an appealable error. Everybody is entitled to have their trial. Uh, but the uh, the problem is if you ended up with a sentence that was outside of what would be the minimum uh, in ninety percent of the cases, it would be wrong. Back you're to still, this. Even if you're even if you're going to avoid a minimum or avoid something higher than a minimum, like what are you going to get on a first offense that's higher? Well, that's than the minimum? point. That's the point. A three thousand dollar fine. I know. You're going to spend fourteen month driving dollars? prohibition. Yeah. I yeah. Know. You know, a thousand dollars more. Wow. Versus rolling the dice. I know. You're fully prepared to pay your lawyer more than that. Um, rolling the dice to get nothing. No, I know. I agree with so, you 100%. So you're going to go for the pretrial conference and the impaired driving. And unless yeah. the Crown is going to actually be offering you something that keeps your client from getting a criminal record, you are never, ever going to be making a deal. It will be down to the wire. You'll be back down to the trial date. And the Crown in those cases, in many cases, will be looking at their file the morning of the trial after they interview the cop and they will be saying to themselves, oh, maybe I should make a deal. Yeah, it's it's honestly it is like that. It's it's so stupid um, because I'm going to sit in every sit or be on the phone in every pretrial conference and go, "Yep, I have instructions for a guilty plea to a motor vehicle act offense. I do not have instructions under any circumstances for a guilty plea to a substantive." And that's the best I can do, Your Honor. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's no incentive, but it's worse. Because the Crown Council policy manual actually prohibits, as it's currently written, prohibits Crown from participating meaningfully in a pretrial conference 
for driving offenses because their impaired driving resolution policy says do not resolve a matter under the Motor Vehicle Act unless one of two conditions is present. First, the charge approval standard is no longer met. But as you and I both know, if the charge approval standard is no longer met, then they the should be a stay of proceedings. Okay. <laughs> Save yeah. the charge then. Like if they're going to say, well, you know, I'm looking at the file and I think the charge approval standard isn't met. And I turn to the judge and say, well, sounds like a stay of proceedings to me. The judge isn't going to go, I don't know, Miss Lee. What about a 144? Yeah, I know. They're going to say, you know. Charge approval standard is not met. It's not met. It is their charge approval standard if they are, uh, you know, not complying with their own rules. (sighs) And then the, the second reason is if the personal circumstances of the accused are so significantly above the ordinary hardship that a person would face as a result of an impaired driving conviction that they would uh, allow a 144 in the public interest. So it can't just be, I'll lose my job, or I'll get a criminal record, and I won't be able to take my kids to Disneyland or whatever. It's got to be something over and above that. But What's worse than that? What, 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 is, what are you going to have? What are you, you going to have? You, you've got to have somebody, family member with cancer, that you've got to drive for cancer yeah, treatment. That's exactly. basically it. It's the only family thing that you're going to come cancer, up with. Like, um, you know, you were driving drunk because your uh, dad had just died in your arms or something. Like, I mean, we've had these types of cases from time to time where somebody has a really tragic story and would suffer significant consequences, but they're the exception, not the rule. Yep. Most people are normal people who made a mistake. Yep. And so they don't fall within the policy. So Crown has to sit there and go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Policy keeps me from having any meaningful resolution discussion with my friend. Policy keeps me from a compromise. While I'm sitting there going, yep, here's the only compromise that I can offer because my duty to my client keeps me from any other compromise. And every pretrial conference on an impaired is going to be an impasse. Well, I will tell you, um, when I was doing it and there was nobody else in the room, so it was just me, the crown, usually a, you know, a prosecutor who hadn't run them cause we were already to that point and they weren't that experienced. Um, and, uh, a judge and a clerk and a sheriff and that was it. Uh, sometimes we would have a real discussion where, you know, I, I would tell the judge, look, there's no, you know, <laughs> I don't think there was R&P grounds here and there was no, the officer didn't record any symptoms all the way through. I'm not going to tell you the rest of my angle on the, uh, on the 08, but that was, you know, that's the angle that I intended to take at least on the impaired. And mm-hmm. the judges sometimes would start, you know, putting some pressure on the crown. Like, why haven't you offered a 144 here? You know, why, why haven't you, why haven't you offered a, a plea to a careless? Yeah. Um, and so that did resolve them. But it but was, that was, it, that was rare. It was only and when the courtroom was open. It was, I usually wouldn't be in that position if it was a more senior crown, cause I would have resolved it the day or so before. It was usually yeah. a junior crown who basically were like a little bit intimidated by the judge at that point. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that's what would lubricate the deal. But I also think there's, there's two other, I don't think it's going to happen anymore. Yeah. And there's two reasons why. What used to happen with the PTCs on the impaired is not going to happen now. One is a decision that came from someone at top level in BC Prosecution Service that now it used to be that you'd have the impaired driving specialist crowns. They'd, they'd have, you know, you would get 
a specific crown who was experienced in pairs, or you'd get a, a relatively more senior crown, somebody, you know, more than five years tall, um, who would be, who would have had run a few impaired, who would have knowledge of them, um, and who could look at it and go, okay, yeah, this is probably not going to go my way. Especially if you were dealing with someone like you, who very experienced Back then, I used lawyer. to run... Yeah, very experienced. 100, 100 impaired driving files a year. Practice is limited to these types of files. So, you know, you want to, you know, not throw the inexperienced junior crown up against the, you know, the... Guy from the office that does that, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's fair. But they made a change after the IRP scheme, I think. I noticed it about two years mm. after. They got rid of the specialist crowns for impaired. They still have resource crowns, but they don't get the files assigned to them the way they do everywhere else. And you have just these the junior crown, usually two or three years at the bar, who are running impaired driving trials because it's a good opportunity for them to learn how to litigate charter issues and scientific issues and issues with experts. And so when you try to explain, you know, this is a problem and I'm going to ask your officer this and he's going to have to say this and that's going to cause this to be a problem for these reasons, they go, mm, I don't think that's a problem. And they don't realize it's a problem until they do, you know, four or five trials and actually experience it <laughs> as a problem. But so few impaired go to trial that they're not doing four or five trials until their 10 year calls. And then they're not, um, then they're not doing impaired anymore. Well, so for, for a while there, we had we had so many trials at Main Street that we had like supervising Crown who were like patrolling, and there was Junior Junior Crown running the trials. And if you had your supervising Crown was patrolling on that floor, uh, you could get them to go. You know, just go run and ask. You know, so and so over there. Uh, tell them this is what my issue is. Tell them this is what your problem is of what your officer just said, uh, and uh, tell them if tell them if they think you should continue to proceed as you are. And that used to solve a lot of problems, actually, uh, especially if you had somebody good, because it was usually the fairly reasonable, experienced people who were who were there. It wasn't an issue of, you know, the problem that you have when you have the manager syndrome, uh, when the manager says, just keep going, keep going. We did run into that too, right? But it would it really depended on who the manager was that day. Yeah. You know, lots of times they, the, the young prosecutor who was trying to deal with it would go to explain it to the supervising crown and, and the supervising crown they couldn't explain it well enough uh and so the supervising crown oh no 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 that's not a problem just go ahead and you know keep going it'll be because <laughs> they, they around that, though you know you'd be like go tell so and so about this issue tell this crown go talk to them yeah, I know. You could do that sometimes. But anyway, it depends on the circumstances. Um, we are 23 minutes in, and okay. we've gone on all about trial confirmation hearings. And well, this is important information. It is important information for lawyers in British Columbia. It's also, excuse me, COVID information. Um, you know, we are going to have a backlog. The backlog is going to be significant. The courts are going to have to act fast. They've realized that they've got to act fast and get back to some sort of functioning to be able to clear some of the docket. But prosecutors in this country, and it's not just going to be in BC, I mean, in Ontario, I'll tell you, uh, we've been, uh, it seems much more organized to deal with this in British Columbia, to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. I worry about places like Ontario, where they seem to have a government that's 
not quite so with it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, <clears throat> well, let's talk about other decisions that that uh, ICDC and government and and people are making, like the government of Surrey. Um, information came to light uh, this week about Surrey's lawsuit with Uber um, and its its attempts to block Uber from operating in the city of Surrey and the challenges that that flowed from that. Of course, we we talked about this before the bylaw tickets that were issued to Uber drivers and the injunction application, um, all of this because Mayor Doug McCallum decided to Have be his an personal outlier. Grudge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, $42,000 the city of Surrey has had to pay for its legal fees and other costs associated with that litigation. $42,000 for something that lasted about two weeks' time in court and raised a whole bunch of stink publicly, made Doug McCallum look like, you know, somebody you didn't want to be friends with, and they got nowhere. Yeah, that's not a lot of money for that litigation, I don't think. I mean, I that's think not a lot of people in British Columbia would like think that, that $42,000 <clears> is a lot of money, Paul. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much work went into it, but I, it doesn't seem that excessive to me. But I'm sure... Um, I'm sure a lot of people would be would think it's a lot of money, and certainly Surrey could have spent it better. Uh, you know, they oh, lost in the end. Know, municipal tax <clears throat> dollars are hard to come by these days. But you run an application like that in court, you know, it's 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 not cheap to do it. You can nope. you could suck that kind of money up fast just because we're surprisingly inexpensive in our office doesn't mean that we're you know we do it we do it surprisingly inexpensively because the things that we do we're doing the same thing over and over. We're not reinventing the wheel. They had to reinvent the wheel. No? No, yeah. yeah, no, I'm, I hear you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, all of this was to block Uber, and now Uber is barely uh, barely operating. Well, they... it's barely an issue. Um, Airbnb, Airbnb, Uber, uh, mm-hmm. and various other large organizations in the so-called sharing economy uh, are uh, hard hit. And um, laying off people like crazy. I think Uber laid off a quarter of its staff, and the um, the executive said they weren't going to pay themselves their salary this year. Yep. Doesn't mean they they're not going to pay themselves their bonuses. Two point nine billion dollar loss, and that was after writing down a bunch of stuff that they were trying to, you know, keep the losses down. Two point one billion pre-tax write down, um, but still, two point nine billion loss. Well, if they fail. And they could very well fail. Somebody else can certainly copy it in a matter of days. You take an app, you take that software, you rewrite it. Uh, you know, you you build the other rest of the other infrastructure. It's not that expensive, and you have no debt when you start. So, mm-hmm. um, of course, you're going to accumulate debt quickly to be able to do it. But you're not in the same situation that, that Uber is with a uh, huge debt, and you know Uber hasn't made money in a long time. I know that one of the food delivery uh, companies that's, um, I don't know if it was Foodora or one of the others, I can't remember which one, is pulling out. Um, yes, actually, that's worth talking about. It's a, it's a bicycle delivery company, but it's still, it's worth talking about. Foodora is pulling out. They're saying, we can't make it financially viable in the Canadian market. But that's not the whole story, Paul. What's the whole story? The whole story was Foodora was involved in some tribunal-level litigation 
I believe in Ontario or Manitoba. I don't really know where. Oh, Not in unionized yet. employees or something. Yes, exactly. The employees were looking to unionize, and there was some tribunal hearing to determine whether they were employees and therefore had the right to unionize. They didn't unionize. There was no order making them a union, no union documents filed or anything like that. They just wanted a declaration from an employment tribunal that they were employees. And the next logical step would be now that we're employees, we're going to take steps to unionize. And as soon as they got that declaration, even though it was at a tribunal level, which would not be binding in every other Canadian jurisdiction, and even though they, of they course, still hadn't formed you know, a union or anything, could judicially review it, and there's still no union, um, and maybe they'd fail in their attempts to unionize, they were so scared of the prospect of unionization, they pulled the plug. And they're based in Germany, too, where they're typically not, you know, timid of unions. Uh, in mm -hmm. Germany, the unions have a representative on the executive of the corporations for any, you know, mid-size and up corporation. Yep. So. This is interesting, in my opinion, because the Supreme Court of Canada has got its decision on reserve in Uber and Teller. The uh -huh, yeah. Ontario decision about whether the Employment Standards Act in Ontario applies to um, the litigation around uh, around Uber's contracts with its drivers, or whether the drivers are bound by this litigation clause that requires them to go to like Panama or somewhere ridiculous to Sweden or something to file their disputes through an arbitration clause. Uh -huh. Uber might do the same thing if they lose at the Supreme Court of Canada, and they've invested, of course, probably millions into that. But if they lose at the Supreme Court of Canada, you know, and then drivers could maybe be employees, could seek a determination about whether they're employees, and then if they are employees, could unionize, and then that would ripple across the country. We could lose Uber as soon as we got it. Yeah, somebody else would come along. Again, you know, this is, uh, this is the uh, app economy. You can... Mm -hmm. Just have to create a new app, set up a new company. The model has already been established. The model already works. <clears throat> we had a bunch of illegal Ubers in the lower mainland operating um, just in uh, Chinese language Ubers uh, mm -hmm. for the longest time. People were able to do it, create the app, you know, create the functional system to do it. So it'll happen again. You know, you could even see eventually um, people who are essentially self-directed people who have their own, you know. <clears throat> Where you actually own... are uh, self-employed? Yeah. That's what Uber's claiming already. Well, and well yeah, but you wouldn't have a company. Maybe somebody would develop an app that people could use for free, some type of open source thing. Maybe there'll be ads on it for ad revenue or something where people can just post, I'm available to give you a ride. That might be the solution to this. Gotta is... go. Gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Just like gotta go. That worked out real well for Larry David. Um, anyway, so Uber, uh, ride sharing. But Uber says that its losses are going to be made up as a result of the increased demand in its first quarter on the food delivery app, which, if you look at the math, doesn't actually work because they're still down 313 million losses on the food delivery. Yeah, um, they they haven't made money on the food delivery either. 
So I know they intended to spread that loss and somehow it's starting to feel like it's more of a Ponzi scheme than an actual corporation. And one wonders if people are going to start pulling their money out desperately um, when they realize that the thing's going to fall. And the other thing is um, executives of a corporation, uh, the principals of the corporation, shareholders, shareholders of the corporation can be on the hook for, um, for wages. Not the shareholders, the executive. The executive of the corporation can be on the hook for wages, not the shareholders. So the um, what happens when a big company like that goes uh, down? And what happens if it turns out the uh, employ- the uh, drivers are actually employees? These are all going to be <clears throat> big, important questions. So we've been talking a lot about speeding. You've seen two different speed traps in locations we wouldn't ordinarily see them. We won't spoil where. Um, Well, there's spots where normally they wouldn't set up because it wouldn't be safe, but traffic's light enough that they're able to set up safely in these other locations now. And so this is a a fascinating Vancouver development that's not just happening in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, enough people have taken notice, finally, of the increase in speeding since we've had the decrease in traffic and the whole pandemic situation, that ICBC has teamed up with the BC government to launch for the month of May a month-long campaign to urge drivers to slow down. So they're essentially concerned that the decrease in cars on the road is leading to an increase in speeding, like, no shit, we've been saying that for a couple months now. Um, and so they're they're trying to uh, increase the speed enforcement through like a little ICBC bump. Well, I noticed that they're pulling people over for, uh, we're getting phone calls for people being pulled over for speeds that you wouldn't normally get pulled over for in the lower mainland. So mm-hmm. if you're in the rest of Canada and you come to visit uh, in normal times, in uh, pre, pre-pandemic days, you could pretty much drive 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, limit almost anywhere, especially where there was traffic, and you would not get pulled over at 19 kilometers an hour over. But if you went to 22, you might get pulled over. So it would be hard to get pulled over um, most of the time. You, you know, you, most of the country, you're looking at uh, 10 kilometers an hour over, and you're probably not going to get pulled over unless you're driving between Ottawa and Montreal um, or some other few places in Ontario. Uh, and in Manitoba, they expect you to drive 10 kilometers an hour under the speed limit. Uh, but uh, in the lower mainland, you've got a boogie, um, and it's, <laughs> traffic is moving faster. And now I see <clears throat> people are phoning me, and they've got uh, tickets for like 15 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Yeah, which, you know, I'm sure that when it comes, you know, eight, eight, eight to 12 months from now, when it comes time to litigate those those speeding tickets in court, you know, and things have gone back to normal and traffic levels have gone back to normal and police have gone back to not pulling you over unless you're doing 20 over in the lower mainland, um, which is not to say go 20 over, just, you know, that's the pattern. Um, I drive the, the speed limit. I go, I go slightly over. I'm not going to lie. I, I speed, but I don't speed at a you know, rate that's going to get me in any trouble. If I drive over the speed limit, it's because I, I'm for a moment not paid attention. I'm pretty, pretty good at abiding by yeah. the speed limit. Yeah. Didn't you drive my car uh, one time when we had a trial in Merritt? You drove there with me in my car and you got my car up to 140. 
Yeah, that was probably on a hill and I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, <laughs> the speed limit's 120, so I was still at sort of the 20 over. Um, <laughs> um, 140 will get you pulled over on the Coca-Cola. That's true. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the, the point is that I think police officers will, by and large, kind of be feeling a little sick about having issued those tickets. Well, wanting to run a trial for 15 kilometers an hour over. You know, you're looking at it, you're like, I would never do this now. Yeah. I can't believe I did that then. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking them for it. Um, If it's a person who's over the speed limit, they're violating the law. If they are given a ticket in those circumstances and uh, the person doesn't believe that it's legitimate, then call us up. Or if you feel that you want to, you know, assert your right to have a trial, call us up. Uh, yep. but the, um, the police issuing the tickets, I, I won't begrudge them, especially when the goal here is to try and get people to slow down a little bit. You know, I've been monitoring the driving in the lower mainland of British Columbia since I moved here. I would say running red lights became a real problem and it may have improved slightly, uh, in the last little while, not from the red light cameras necessarily informing people right away, but when people get a ticket. A red light camera ticket, I think they do think differently about going through those lights after that. Yeah, I mean, the majority of people I've talked to since we've had those speed tickets, um, speed intersection speed camera tickets, have mostly been saying, I'm certain I wasn't going that fast. Yeah, I know. With the speed ones, everybody's telling me they weren't going that fast. And I'm, I believe that when everybody's telling me, I don't trust them. But yeah. yeah, And I saw some people servicing them the other day, and they didn't look like they were, you know highly trained technicians, but. <laughs> but do police officers look like highly trained technicians? Yeah, some of them do. Anyway, okay. you know, sometimes you can read a book by the cover, sometimes you can't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, again, it's, uh, people have complained for the longest time that, uh, that drivers in the lower mainland are just not properly trained, which brings us back to another issue. You and I talked recently about Georgia uh, allowing teens who have completed so many months of driving with a learner's license just to be able to go online, click a few boxes, and maybe their parents sign off something uh, for them to get their license because they didn't want these uh, poor kids to, you know, have to wait to get their driver's license just because of a pandemic and not being go- not be able to go for a road test. And you said, no, no, that'd be fine. You know, there wouldn't be any fraud. And I said, well, we've had tons and tons of fraud over the years. In British Columbia, excuse me. Um, Yeah, it wouldn't be that many people. And I said, well, there's been lots of people, lots of people over the years who, uh, you know, were bribing uh, uh, instructors and things like that, Um, (laughs) or coming in with fake licenses and being able to do that. Uh, Nearly 20,000 Georgia teens have gotten their driver's licenses now without a road test. It was in like 10 days. 20,000 of them. How do you yeah, feel about that? Those people are on the road with you, folks from the Georgia. Po- the population <laughs> of Georgia is almost 11 million people. So 20,000 out of 11 million In 10 days. Pers- person population, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily with you, but, but I hear you. Anyway, Paul, I, I think it's time for our favorite portion of the podcast. What's that? It's the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Good one this week. 
Yeah. Good one. A great this one. Week. Yeah. <laughs> so there has been a story making the rounds on the media, and we'd be remiss if we did not include it. It is perhaps the youngest ridiculous driver to ever be featured on this podcast. Uh, a five year old boy uh, got caught driving um, by police in Utah, and he was pulled over. And he told the police officers that he was heading to California because he was going to buy himself a Lamborghini from California. And he even showed them that he had three whole dollars in his pocket to buy his dream car, the Lamborghini Huracan. Had taken the family car and he was pulled over because the police officer believed it was a possible impaired driver because it wasn't staying in the lane properly on, I think it looked like a, like a heavy road. Or uh, even a highway, like it was a, it was a significant road where he was pulled over, mm-hmm. and in the left lane, I think. So yeah. the police officer pulled him over and looked and thought, "Is this kid nine? What are they doing in a car?" And it turns out the child was five. Well, I don't understand though. Like, I mean, I don't hang around with a lot of five-year-olds. But how did he reach the pedals? Well, in the photos, he looked like he was nine, like he was a big kid. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. A lot older than five. I don't know what kind of car. But you think about it, like the um, uh, Ford for a while there had pedals that you could adjust for shorter people. It wasn't a very popular thing, and I don't know if they still have it. But you could, you mm-hmm. could. It was an electronic electrical adjustment, uh, just like power seats. It was power pedals would move closer to you. Uh, so who knows? I mean, uh, in the right Ford, you might be able to do that. Uh, you might have to dip your head down below the dash every once in a while to slide to get to the gas and look where you're going on the road. I don't know. I don't know how he managed to do it. Um, the uh, But five years old, that's the youngest I've seen. I know I've seen one making the rounds um, of a Russian 10-year-old who took the car with his four-year-old sister in it and was in a high-speed chase with the police and wouldn't stop. And there was a a camera, of course, so many Russians have cameras in their cars. There was a camera recording it and there's the discussion in the car and it's like the four-year-old's crying, are they going to put us in a cage? And the 10-year-old, yeah, they are, but they're not going to catch us. And it goes on, like it's 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 really frightening because they're driving on the wrong side of the road and the whole bit. And you're so worried because you think it's just going to end in misery and they end up ditching it on the right so, oh but it's quite, it's quite, it's difficult to watch. That's um, hilarious. Anyway, so I would tell everybody, discourage your children from stealing the car. I've never had to worry about my kids taking the car. Uh, and they're 11 and eight. On top of the fridge. Oh, somewhere where that's where, back when I used to take the car when I was 14, my dad used to tell me, if something goes wrong, just tell them I was asleep and you took the keys off the top of the fridge. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a okay. good, that's a good dad. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, I, I. You think the kids, the kids don't know where the top of the fridge is, Kyla? (laughs) Paul, the story of this five-year-old has a happy ending. So apparently after, um, his sort of car theft went viral, um, the, uh, a, a Lamborghini owner in his hometown who owned the vehicle, uh, offered to give him a ride in it. So he got a ride in his dream car after all. Well, that's good. He got a ride in it. So there's a reward for him. I okay, know. kids, so steal, steal your parents' car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And chances are you'll get to go for a ride in a Lamborghini. 
I'm just thinking, like, what do I really want to do and what crime can I commit mm-hmm. or regulatory violation can I commit to get what I want and then I won't get it. I don't think you can. I don't think you me. can do that in your I don't think you can do that in your mid 20s, Kyla. Mid 20s. My 30s. Yeah, whatever. Um, OK, I think we're okay, done we today. Yeah. Uh, and that was a lot of talk about pre-trial conferences. I'm sorry, everybody, about the pre-trial conference rant. I didn't know that that's where Kyla was going to go, but there you, you know, go. like knocking my podcast. Well. I'm going to demote you from co-hostess with the mostest to, to some, co-hostess with the leastest. No, I can just be, can I just be somewhere in between? Co-hostess with not very much? Co-hostess that's the mediocrest. Sure. That would, that would be fine. <laughs> I'm happy with that. Anyway, I miss uh, miss seeing you, and I uh, look forward to actually having you in the studio again. Um, get over your whatever you've got. And Kyla was tested. She went through the drive-through testing, and mm. was tested, and uh, they stuck something I saw up her Pop nose. I do. Yeah. And, I kept waving uh, him, but I don't think he recognized me because, well, like, you know, you've had none of the other symptoms, so. No, and, and I already you had already it. had it. So. Yeah, it's oh. just I got this like fever that won't go away. Yeah, more cowbell. Alrighty. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, if you have any driving law-related question or you are confused about pretrial conferences, give us a call, 604-685-8889, or find us online, vancouvercriminallaw.com, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.